Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, and we will be in verses 27 through 50. And while you're turning there, let me welcome you as well. My name is Tyler. I have already been outed as the youth pastor. Um, it's who I am. It's who I identify as. I'm the youth pastor here. And so I'm glad that you are here with us this morning. I'm really excited to continue our series through the Gospel of John. And as I was kind of thinking about these verses, I have read them, I don't know how many times I've preached them before on a few occasions, but as I was reading through a fresh 27 through 50 of John chapter 12, I uh, was just reminded how simple this passage of Scripture is and yet how much depth there is. That is, not that it's difficult really to understand on its face, but how much is packed into this small section of Scripture. And so one of the things I usually do is to, to be encouraged when I'm facing something that at least feels difficult to teach or preach I like to go to a man named J.C. Ryle for encouragement. J.C. Ryle was a pastor, a theologian, a Bible commentator, and he has a really great uh, set of books called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. And so he always warms my soul. And so I just want to encourage us as we begin our time together with a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, these verses show us what St. Peter meant when he said there are some things hard to understand in Scripture. That's it. That's how he opens his section on this passage of Scripture. And I, I got to thinking, yeah, that actually is really true. I mean, if you're reading through it, there is much that you can glean and much that makes your soul glad in the Lord. But when I think about all of the things we have to unpack in the very short amount of time we have this morning, I'm thinking, you know what, you're right. Peter's right. The Bible's hard. <laughs> and so here we are this morning. But one of the subtle risks we face when reading through a gospel like John's that is, is really a beautiful story, a beautiful narrative of the life and work of Jesus, in particular revolving around the miracles of Jesus, one of the risks we face is undervaluing the things that may seem difficult or mundane or boring and valuing the big moments, the big miracles that we come to in this gospel. And the reason I say that is because when we do that, we run the risk of devaluing the words of Jesus as if they are not as important as his miracles. And so my hope as we come to this passage this morning is that we would learn and see that it is so very important. In fact, it is supremely important that we listen to Jesus, that, that we hear him, that we heed the words that he speaks, not only to his audience in the Bible, but clearly to us as we read and preach and teach and sing the Bible for ourselves. And so let's turn there now, first, or excuse me, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 50. Here John says, quoting Jesus, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. 
Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even among the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than, than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, Lord, both its simplicity and its depth. We pray now that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would quicken our hearts to understand what it is that you have written to us, and more importantly, what it is you are saying to us. We pray that if there are, and there certainly are, unbelievers in this room today, that you would regenerate their hearts, that you would quicken them unto salvation, that through the preaching of the gospel, they might hear and trust and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, you are the giver of the ultimate good gift, and we are so grateful that we can gather here today and to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we pray that all that would be said would be to your honor, to your glory, and to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray all of these things, amen. Okay, so as we begin, I want to ask a question to kind of guide our time. If you heard a message that could save your life, what would you do with that knowledge? If you heard a message that could save your life, what would you do with that knowledge? So I've broken this passage up into three parts, all under the main heading of God's plan 
of salvation. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to work our way through this passage and see just what it is that Jesus is saying to us. And I want to make note that this is Jesus' final speech that he will ever give in public. As soon as we turn over to 13, we are making our way to the cross, and Jesus will never again in this way address the crowds like this. And so as we think about all of these things that he has just said, note that what is happening is that these are the final moments, these are the final words that Jesus has for all of the people that have been following him around the countryside. It's really important because what we end up having is what Jesus thinks is most important for these people to hear for the very last time. And so the first point is this. God's plan of salvation, Jesus will die so others may live. So this is Jesus' final speech. So how does he capitalize on this moment? I'm thinking maybe what he may do is think, okay, well, how can we draw the crowds in? How can we entertain them a little bit? We want to do all that we can so as many people will come and hear what we have to say. Well, the reality is, is he doesn't do anything new. His first immediate instinct is to draw or call their attention to what he's been doing this entire time for the entirety of his ministry, and that is to draw their eyes to this hour. And so from the very beginning, the fact that Jesus came, his very birth, to everything that he said, to all of his miracles, have been revolving and centered on this hour. And this hour is what we talked about last Sunday in verse 24 of John chapter 12, when Jesus says, a grain of wheat must fall, and it must fall into the ground and die. And simply what he means is that I have come to die so that others may live. And there is only life through death. And so Jesus' whole point as he begins this conversation with these people is, I am the Son of Man who has been sent for the primary purpose of dying so that people like you might have life. He doesn't do anything new at all. His whole ministry revolves around this one central truth. But, but I don't want us to miss, let's reread verse 36. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus, his ministry has never just been about good theology or awesome miracles. He, he's never just been one to want to transfer good theology and doctrine to these people or woo them with the miracles that he and only he can do unless he grants that power to someone else. The, the purpose of Jesus' coming, Jesus tells us in verse 36, is not only for those things, but for the primary purpose that we might believe in him. And so the thing that he tells these people in his last moments is, this whole thing has been for you to believe in me. In fact, he says, for this purpose, for this hour, for this reason, I have come to this moment. For this reason. Like, think about Jesus telling someone, hey, this is the whole reason I came. I mean, we, we know if we're good Bible people what that entails, but could you imagine Jesus standing before you and simply saying, for this reason, I have come to this hour? I mean, think about it. But do you want to know how big God's love is, how, how just very gracious he is? Something in this passage that amazes me is when God speaks, when, when his voice thunders and all of these people hear it, 
God speaks an unimaginable truth to these people for them to hear. And it's this, that God has made his receiving of glory dependent upon Jesus' obedience. Well, not very revolutionary, right? (laughs) Of course Jesus is going to be obedient. Of course Jesus is going to do exactly what the Father asks of him. But think about that for just a moment. God's glory is bound to Jesus' obedience. So we all say, duh, yeah, right, okay. But what does Jesus say that his obedience is to the Father? He, he tells us that his obedience is to be lifted up. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Well, what, what are you doing? I'm, I'm being lifted up for you. What that means is that when God says that I have already been glorified in you and I will glorify myself in you, God, the creator of all things, the one who has set everything into motion and holds it in motion by his word is saying, I have tethered or I have bound my receiving of glory to your receiving of salvation. Think about that just for a moment. The God of all is binding his receiving of glory, which is owed and due to his name, to the saving of people like me and you. Now, the thing that blows my mind, though, is that God always receives the glory that is due to his name. And so what that means for people who have placed their faith in Christ is that our salvation is guaranteed because it is a means by which God has been glorified. God hasn't just looked upon us and thought, man, it's just, they're really, they're really sad. You know, sometimes I do that in my life. Whenever I see my children carrying around frogs or lizards like this, or in buckets like this, <laughs> and I think, oh, that's actually sad. It is very cruel. Please don't grow up to be a serial killer. Like, I mean... Like, I think that way about things. Oh, man, this poor, this poor creature. It's so sad for them. God, God didn't look at us that way. He, he didn't look at us and think, oh, man, it's, it's just so sad for them. No. In his plan of salvation, he decided to receive glory through saving us, not pitying us, not feeling sorry for us, but saving us. So we know, because we've read the Bible, that Jesus is going to obey. His obedience to the Father will be true. He will do what God has asked him to do. So one of the things we have to ask, though, is then then what, what troubled him? Why was he so troubled? Is it the fact that he was going to die a gruesome death, that he would be lifted up on a cross, that he would be mocked and ridiculed, that he would have to drink sour wine from a sponge, that he would have his side pierced? What is it that is troubling him in this moment? Because in one sense, he's saying, I am troubled. And later on, he will pray in a garden that this cup might pass from him. And yet he is saying, but I will do this. So is it the fear of death? Well, I don't think that's what it is at all. I mean, certainly the man Jesus, being fully man and fully God, would have some sort of concern about physically dying. But I don't think that's his trouble in this moment. I think his trouble is actually much, much more than that. I think 
Really, it can be summed up like this. His trouble is the cost of all of this. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. It's well known to you probably. But here the prophet Isaiah says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So one of the things I want you to to realize is that all of this stuff here is referring not simply to the physical nature of his death, but the fact that he will bear the weight of God's wrath. It's not just the fact that he will be lifted up and pierced. It's the fact that he realizes that he is the only one who can go to the cross and bear the wrath that was intended for us. The full weight of God's judgment in a moment. You know, I think that type of darkness, that type of weight, that burden, that separation, I think that would trouble me too. But the reality is, what Jesus wants these people to know is the very thing that troubles them is the very thing that rests upon them unless they trust in Christ. Could you imagine having a condition that literally troubled the Son of God and doing nothing about it? When there's a free offer that someone else would take all of that trouble from you. You know, when I was reading through this, I can't help, and I'm sure maybe some of you did too, but think of this this scene of the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21, right? Be lifted up. Well, immediately, maybe some of us thought of the bronze serpent in the wilderness. So in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, Moses recalls this account. He says, from Mount Hor, that is the people of Israel, they set out by the way of the Red Sea. Now, just to remind us, just in case you're not familiar... God has used Moses to bring the people of Israel out of captivity from Egypt. And one of the issues they had is they just complained about literally everything. I mean, the dirt is too hard. The dirt is too soft. The quail is too gross. The bread is too awesome. I mean, everything. And so here we are in another scene of complaining. So from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Yeah, go figure. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You just said there's no food, and now you're loathing the food. They have no idea what's happening. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What I want to draw from this passage of Scripture is that... um, well, really just the importance that you and I, we, we cannot save ourselves. 
Now, one of the tragedies of Genesis chapter 3 and the human condition of sin is that we really think that we can. We, we try to save ourselves in, in, in many, many ways. And I can only imagine, with literally only my imagination, that in Numbers chapter 21, there were Israelites who thought, well, I don't know, maybe we can, maybe we can suck this venom out. Maybe if we rub this special plant on this bite, maybe if we run around like idiots, whatever it is we want to do, maybe, maybe, just maybe we can save ourselves. But this is what we all do. We have a, we have a mortal wound and yet we grasp onto this or to that thinking that it can bring us salvation, that it can cure the deadness and the effects of deadness and sin all around us that we face every day. So we try this, we try that, and we think, if I just try a little bit harder, I can bear this burden for myself. But what happened in the wilderness is really such a beautiful picture for us. And it's this, that you will die unless you look to the thing lifted up and live. Stop running around. Stop trying to tend to the wound yourself. You will die unless you look to the one who has been lifted up to save you. And in Numbers 21, it tells us if they look up to the serpent, then they will live. You see, what Jesus is doing here for these people in these final moments, mind you, is he is, he's, He's calling them and He's calling us to lift our eyes away from the difficulties, uh, lift, lift our eyes away from the hopelessness of life in a fallen world. And to see that He died to deliver us. To see that God has sent Him into the world to rescue people like you and like me. You know, the reality is, is that we we're more lost than we really could ever imagine. I don't think we can really fathom, and maybe we won't until heaven, and maybe even then we won't either. But just how close to hell we really were, just how close to facing the wrath of God for ourselves that we really were. And the reality for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ is that it is only because of God's divine plan that any of us went from being lost to being found. And even then, it's only because Jesus Christ came to seek us. He came to us. He entered into what we experience to be able to tell these people, I know, I know what this burden feels like. I know the crushing weight of living this life. But if you will just look to me, I will heal you. It's really amazing. Jesus will die so others may live. The second thing, though, is this. In God's plan of salvation, we see the danger and necessity of unbelief. And so I've really, up to this point, loved preaching this sermon. But then John does something um, really inconvenient for all of us. He gives a biblical and theological commentary. And so you have, in verses 27 
through 36, the words of Jesus, and then you have in 37 through 43, John giving us a narrative or a commentary on this whole scene. So here's Jesus offering salvation to these people, and then John jumps in and basically says, oh, by the way, so let's take a look. So I think what John is doing here is he is taking a moment to help us understand this whole plan of salvation. Right? It would really be kind of simple to just say, hey, just trust in Jesus, believe you can be saved. Let's just call it a day. Let's pray and go home. We're all happy. It's a good day. But John doesn't want to just leave us with that understanding only of God's plan of redemption. And so I think he is saying, yes, God is sovereign in salvation. If you turn and believe, he will save you. That is true. God, by the power of his spirit, quickens dead hearts unto life so that they might believe with the gift of faith. Right, so you understand, you're tracking God, 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 trust in Jesus, right? Well, John wants us to see that, yes, God is completely and totally sovereign, but he exerts his sovereign grace through the response of man. God is sovereign, but he exerts that sovereign grace through the response of man. And so, if you're thinking we're about to have a lesson on Calvinism and, and Arminianism, uh, we are not, because I don't think that's what's happening here in this passage. I think what he is saying, and he's not trying to make an argument one way or the other, is simply that God is sovereign. From eternity past, he is completely and totally sovereign in salvation. That means that he is in control, that he will elect and predetermine every human being's eternal state. That truth runs from eternity past to eternity future beside the parallel truth that you are still responsible for believing in God, for placing your faith in Christ. But here's why that's so important for a people like this. Right, we're talking about largely unbelievers. I mean, the Bible literally tells us that some of these people just did not get it and they did not believe. And so we have to ask the question, okay, well then what good, honestly, would a deep theological doctrinal look at the sovereignty of God do for them? Well, it does this. It calls them to think, not just, okay, can I understand these things? Am I smart enough to be a Christian? It's saying, don't miss that God is asking something of you. Yes, he is completely sovereign. Yes, he saves who he wills, but he exerts it through your responsibility of believing. You must believe these things. If you don't believe them, that means you have exerted your responsibility of unbelief. That'll be really important for us in just a moment. And so I think that John's point is not to argue the validity of something like predestination. All my cards on the table, I just totally buy into the fact that God predestines and predetermines the eternal salvation or not for every human being in eternity past, irregardless of how good or how bad they will be. Because, I mean, quite frankly, from Genesis chapter 3, there are no good people that even exist. And so really, there's, there's no difficulty in John's mind in thinking about something like predestination. 
John is simply saying, hey, this, um, this is true. This is who God is, and this is what he does, and this is how he works. Now, we can have an argument about that over email later. That's fine. But that's not the purpose of what John is doing here. I think what John is doing is showing us the grave danger of unbelief. He's wanting us to see just how much our faith or lack thereof has to do with our eternity. Like you can't just put this on God and hope things will pan out in the end or put this on God and hope that he's just good enough to let you in. You have a responsibility in all of this. And in fact, what Jesus says is that belief, dis- unbelief is not just an unfortunate state, right? Again, we're not just the frog in the thing being spun around. It's, it's not just unfortunate that you don't believe these things. He tells them as they're listening, hey, you, you do realize that at any moment, this is final. I, any moment you could die and you could die in your unbelief. In fact, in verses 35, the first part there, he says this, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. What does that mean? Well, I think literally it means that he is just with them for a little while. He's making his way to the cross. He is going to die. But I think also it speaks to how fast life moves. In the blink of an eye, Jesus will return. And so he says, in a little, just a little while longer. And so then he says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And then in verse 37, he says these awful words. John does, that is. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Unbeliever, what I want you to understand is that there is something to lament about hellfire and brimstone preaching. But there's also truth there. That, that we don't have much time. That even today, in the blink of an eye, your life could come to an end. And your unbelief will be your unbelief for eternity. The problem with eternity and unbelief, though, is that you will know what is true and what is not. And you will hate that truth forever. You see, Jesus... He wants to save them from that. He wants them to see the urgency with which they should believe in all of the things that he has said and all of the things that he has shown them throughout his ministry. These were not just great party tricks. Jesus is not good simply at producing good wine out of nasty water. His purpose is to make all things new. But we do have to contend with verses 37 through 40. So we do have this group of people who will not believe. And in fact, John quotes Isaiah and says, It is God who has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes and shut their ears so that through the prophet Isaiah, even the people he's preaching the gospel to would never listen and be saved. Okay, so thanks, John. Why did you put this in here? So, so, what do we, so what do we do with these people? Well, we got to do a little bit of work, but this is really amazing. John chapter 1, verse 5. 
the opening of the gospel says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, we can reasonably add to this, though it will try. You can't bring the light in the world and the darkness not overcoming it unless the darkness tries to overcome it. The, the great plot twist of eternity is that Jesus will make his way to a cross on Calvary. He will be lifted up and he will be crushed. He will be pierced, but he will not stay that way. Though the darkness tries to snuff out the light, it will not be successful. Jesus will be our risen victor. The darkness will try to overcome it, but it will not succeed. You see, in God's plan of salvation, the darkness must make an attempt to overthrow the throne of Jesus. Sinners like you and me in our unbelieving state must believe that we are God and that God is not. We must believe that we are worthy of worship and God is not. We must believe that we are the recipients of true glory and God is not. Right? I titled this, The Danger and Necessity of Unbelief. We're going we're gonna to bring that to a conclusion in just a moment. But once again, when we look at these people, when we look at this, this thing called the darkness, which is not just a random thing, it's, it's people with, with their warlord Satan trying to overcome Christ. When we look at that thing, it's not that we're supposed to try to understand everything that's happening or, okay, well, you said God is sovereign, we're responsible, I'm so, what is happening here? The thing that John is once again doing, because Jesus is asking us to believe, we're supposed to be asking the question, okay, well then, who is responsible? Is God responsible for their unbelief or are they responsible for their unbelief? And John says, no, the question is, are you? Are you responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ and trying to overcome what he does by raising from the dead three days later by living in unbelief and being at one with the darkness? Is it you? That's the question. Not understanding all of the intricate, deep things, but asking, am I amongst the unbelievers? Am I one of the ones that Jesus is speaking to and I'm just not listening? We'll go back to Isaiah 53. So, so what is the conclusion then of God being completely sovereign and then these people being responsible for their unbelief? Well, this time let's start in verse 1 and we'll read verses 1 through 5. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But verses 4 and 5. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So what is John wanting us to understand? That the rejection of Isaiah chapters 1 through 3 is necessary for the glorious grace that we see in verses 4 and 5. Meaning that unbelief in this sense leads to the victory of Christ, which is our salvation. Why is unbelief necessary? Because Jesus must be put on the cross. He must be crushed by the weight of our sin. And it's only He who can take that weight and then stand before a holy, perfect God as one who has reconciled these people to God. This is necessary. But the question again is this. Which defines you? Are you among the rejectors of Isaiah 53, 1 through 3? Or are you one of the ones who have received this glorious grace in verses 4 through 5? Uh, growing up, um, I uh, lived on a horse farm for most of my child and teen years. And uh, one of my jobs was to go out to the barn and check on the mares that were in labor. And I love this job. It was really fun. I loved being able to be the one who runs back, and I'm like, she's having a baby. Like, it's like you have the big news that you get to tell everybody, and at six years old, it's like you, you are sovereign over the world, right? You have something nobody else knows, and you need to let them know. Uh, one of the problems is, is that sometimes I was asked to do this after dark, and uh, let me just lay out how the event would take place. So I would be asked, Tyler, go out to the barn, check on this particular mare, see if she's had the baby, see what's going on, and then you come back and you tell us. Okay, well, that's fine. It's dark. So I walk out the door, I make it 10 feet, then I get uneasy. Because for some reason in Ohio, our barns are eight miles away from our house. So I'm walking, I become uneasy, you know what, I, I should jog this thing out. So then I start jogging. And then the next thing you know, I start panicking. And then I'm like, you know what? I should just sprint this whole thing. And then I run to the bar and I try to jump as high as I can. Now there's no babies, run back. And I'm just petrified of being out in the middle of nowhere in, in the dark. And so before you judge me, I guarantee that there is a large portion of you who are faster than Usain Bolt if I give you a garbage bag and tell you to take it to the trash can after dark, right? It, it, it's just... It's just the way it is. Darkness has a way of warping our view of reality. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I mean, sometimes we grow out of it, sometimes we don't, or the circumstances may dictate that we may go back into those moments where we find ourselves in the dark and we begin to think, mm, I, I know, I know that there are no axe murderers or bears or any other dangerous things like around the side of my house by my trash can, but you know what? Just in case, <laughs> right? And we, we have a way of believing things that are utterly ridiculous and false because that's what darkness can do to us. It, it, it warps our view of what is actually true. 
And what we end up doing is we end up believing the things that are not true over the things that are. You know, John says it this way. The darkness can cause us to believe that the disapproval of our peers is more dangerous than the disapproval of God. The sad thing about these people is that when Jesus walks away for the last time, he says that they loved the glory that came from men more than the glory that came from God. They thought in their minds, you know what is more dangerous? Being judged by a friend than being judged by God. That's what darkness does to us. But it's not just a fact. None of these things are just facts. It's a warning. John is telling us, you see these people? You see how they responded to Jesus and all that he had to say? Don't be like them. Place your faith in Jesus. Listen to him. Trust in him. Hear what he has to say. If you will do that, he will save you. He will bring you out of the darkness and into the light to see things as they really are. But the final thing is, and this will go very quickly, in God's plan of salvation, we see finally here that God calls us to believe. And so I want you to see the simple clarity of the gospel. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread verses 44 through 50 and make just a couple comments. Here it says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So, I hope you were listening to that, because I, I want you to note something. In verse 36, John tells us that Jesus went away from this crowd and departed. We don't know for how long, we don't know where he went, but he saw these people and he knew keenly their unbelief, and he went away. But John then tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then comes back and cries out one more time, listen to what I am saying. Hear my words. There is a sense of urgency in Jesus' cry here. I, I'm not just saying these things to have one last great speech. I'm saying these things that you might come out of the darkness and in to the light, that you might come from death and cross over to life by my name. He goes away and then he comes back and he cries out. But, but let this sink in. At the very end, he tells us that God's command, right? Like there's no disclaimer, there's no clarifications. He just says God's command is for eternal life. Like his command? What one? Like command number three, command number Seven, command point three A, like, like, no, just his command. 
God's command. Well, when did that start? I don't know. Forever. His command has always been what? Eternal life. The God who created all things, who was not surprised at all when you and I rebelled against Him. The God who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile those enemies to Himself. His command has always been eternal life. His command to Jesus was that you would go and that you would go and you would live for this one moment, for this one hour, that people could look to you, lift it up, and that they could come out of their deadness and receive salvation. For that moment, I command you, my son, to go. And to all of these people, I command you to listen and hear the words of Jesus Christ and live. And so what that means is that for people like you and me, No matter where you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what your background is, no matter how much abuse that you have faced, no matter how unsavable or savable in your eyes you think you are, no matter what your family looks like, whether you are the only potential believer in your entire family tree or whether everyone else believes, irregardless of all of those things, what Jesus is saying is that I have come at the command of the Father to offer you the security of eternal salvation. His final words to these people is, trust in me and believe I have come to bring you life. My whole ministry, every word, every miracle has been for the purpose of you to believe. And so what do we say? Well, we say to the believer, this is our great God. This is what he has done for us. And to the unbeliever, we say, Jesus wants you to know that that God can be yours too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time you have given us to consider your gracious and beautiful and abundant plan of grace in saving your people. I pray, Lord, that you would use this message to draw unbelievers to yourself, that you alone would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted And we would be so very pleased to worship you knowing that you are the God who not only saves us, but seeks after unbelievers and gives them life. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.